0: Good morning, everyone, for like the third time, like I've already been up and down a bunch. Uh, Matthew chapter 11 is where we're going to hang out. If you have your Bibles today, Matthew chapter 11, grab your notes out of your bulletin or maybe fire up that Journey app so you can follow along. Listen, if you're brand new to church, you're like, man, I don't have a Bible, I've never read the Bible, we were hoping you would be here so that everything we read from Scripture will be on the screen, so it'll be really easy for you to follow along. So we hope you have a a good experience. Even if you've never been to church before, we hope it's a good experience for you. And I want to pause right now, because I felt like the Lord laid this on my heart in our 845 service, and I didn't say it. So when the Lord laid it on my heart again at 1030, um, I thought, man, I just need to say this. There's somebody in here today who's lost somebody, and I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you stop thinking of them as gone and start thinking of them with Jesus. For those of us who have lost people who were close to us, who spent their life walking with Jesus, they are now spending their eternity walking with Jesus. And Paul told the church at Thessalonica, like, we don't grieve like the rest of the world grieves who don't have any hope. We are people who remember that our loved ones and our friends and our family, like we are people who remember the grace of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus. Like we are people who grieve differently because when we think about those who have gone before us, we remember they're with Jesus and that kind of changes everything. So if that's you today and you've been mourning through a season of thinking about somebody who's gone, who is actually with Jesus, flip that perspective and see them with Jesus. Listen, next Sunday is going to be a really powerful Sunday. Pastor Clayton King is going to be here. You heard him talking about it on the announcements. This Sunday is not really for you as much as it's for someone in your life who doesn't know Jesus or who needs the hope of Jesus. They need to be reminded. We're calling 2022 at Journey, the year of come and see. We want to invite people to come and see who Jesus is. We have about eight very specific come and see Sundays that are specifically to speak to people who are hurting by giving them hope in Jesus. This is one of those Sundays. If you don't bring a friend or family member who's hurting with you, you're gonna leave next Sunday thinking, I wish I would have brought mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, friend, neighbor, teammate, classmate. I wish I would have brought them. They needed to hear this. I've been talking with Clayton the last few weeks. He's gonna speak on a woman from the book of Mark who for 12 years had tried everything in life to fix her life but Jesus and nothing had worked. She had lost all hope. And then she came into contact with Jesus. It's our hope that people in your life who are hurting, who right now are hopeless, will just be introduced to come and see real big who Jesus is. So please don't come alone next Sunday because it's a great, great day to have people with you in church who may not know who Jesus is or follow him, or who may have lost a little hope in Jesus along the way. Because of what life has thrown at them. We're in Matthew chapter 11 today. We actually don't get past verse 1 before Matthew says, remember Matthew chapter 10. So in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 1, here's what Jesus says. We actually have to start, stop, go backwards, and then continue because that's what Matthew does. He says, after Jesus had finished. So you need to underline that. And anytime you start a chapter with that, you have to remember what came before it. Because the author is saying, these things are connected. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. So right now, we're in the midst of a series called Jesus People. And here's the goal of this series. For us to develop a full realization as followers of Jesus, of what it looks like to live on mission for Jesus. That's the point of this series in Matthew chapter 9, 10, 11. Now we're in chapter 12. We're trying to figure out what does it look like to really follow Jesus well. We actually started two years ago in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, listening to the teaching of Jesus. And I'll be really honest with you, the first nine and a half chapters of Matthew were pretty positive for Jesus' people. Jesus laid out the foundations of his message, of his teaching, of his followers, of his mission. Very little went wrong. In about halfway through Matthew chapter 10, so about nine and a half chapters in, Jesus also filled us in on a little more info that Jesus' followers and Jesus' mission would be rejected by some people and in some places. We actually spent 42 verses in Matthew chapter 10 talking about two spiritual realizations that Jesus' people have to have as they walk with Jesus. Realization number five is like, it's not gonna be easy. So in this series in Matthew 9 through 11, we're learning nine spiritual realizations that Jesus' people eventually have if they live and die as followers of Jesus. You eventually get to the point where you realize it's not easy. Not everyone is for Jesus. And when they find out I am for Jesus, they are against me. Jesus just said like, you need to be aware that that's going to happen but we're going to go anyway. Like we're going to realize sometime that we're going into hostile territory. We're going to realize it won't be easy, but we're going to go anyway, and we're going to have tremendous impact. Those were the last two weeks in Matthew chapter 10. But here's what we're going to learn in Matthew chapter 11. When it's not easy, but you go anyway, when you are both rejected and impactful, it can really bruise your soul a little bit. And when your soul begins to get beat up living on mission for Jesus, you're gonna realize realization number seven that we're gonna look at today. You're gonna realize that doubt spiritually is very real and it's also okay. When you find yourself living in a world where not everyone is for Jesus and because you're for Jesus, they're against you, but you try to live for Jesus anyway, you're gonna get beat up spiritually. And as you begin to get beat up spiritually, you're gonna begin to question spiritually. You need to realize as a Jesus follower that's, that's real, and it's okay. It's very, very normal. But we want to use that doubt to push us closer to Jesus, not take us further away from Jesus. So that really is the goal of today's message. John MacArthur, speaking about this text in Matthew chapter 11, says, except for when we willingly continue in sin, we're never so vulnerable to doubting God's goodness and truth and believing Satan's lies as when we're suffering. And maybe, maybe that's where God wanted me to connect the dots. Some of you today continuing to live in a posture of suffering because of someone you've lost, your heart is still really, really wounded. And when your heart suffers, your mind begins to doubt and the lies of the enemy begin to fill your head. If you're here and you're suffering, what we want you to know is we're here for you. We're willing to suffer with you. Whatever you need for us, we'd like to step into the middle of your mess and walk with you until you feel like you're okay. Because that's what we believe Jesus does for us. But if you're here and you're not suffering, You probably know someone who is. And here's what you need to know for your Christian friends and family members who are suffering. It's causing them to doubt God. Like we just sang that song about like the goodness and mercy of God, like following me every day of our life. And some of you are like, that's not true of me right now. I know the Bible says it, but I'm not experiencing it. The suffering in my life is causing me to question what the Bible says about God. For those of us who know people who are suffering, we need to stay closer to them, not further away, because doubt has a way of kind of messing with their mind spiritually and telling them that they cannot trust God. And we are watching on a worldwide stage, suffering right now for the people in Ukraine, for those of you who have been watching that unfold. Some of you all week long have been watching the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, and some of you in your hearts have been saying something like this, I just wish there's something we could do. And for some of you, there might be. We have a large team of Fellowship of Christian Athletes, which is a ministry in Kansas City that works with coaches to disciple athletes really all over the world, but it's headquartered here. We have several Fellowship of Christian Athletes team members who go to our church, and they were this week at their annual conference in San Antonio. And at that annual conference in San Antonio was the Fellowship of Christian Athletes from the Ukraine, a group of about 25 families. I want to show you a picture of them who packed a suitcase to come for a one-week conference and who are not now sure if they can ever go home. Some of them came with their children. Some of them left their children at home. And FCA reached out to Journey because we have such a connection with them and basically said, Christian, we've got 25 families who don't know what they're going to do. They left their home with a suitcase and now they're not allowed back in and they're not sure whether or not they're ever going to be able to go home. So we're bringing these 25 families to Kansas City and we're praying that God's church might open up their arms to house some of these families, to clothe some of these kids. Most of them are English speaking to just kind of wrap their arms around them in probably this season of a couple weeks to a month to figure out what's next. If that would be you, if you'd be willing to help, we've got 25 families from the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Ukraine who run that ministry who are getting ready to come to our town And they had no idea a week ago that they have, would have nothing but their entire world has changed And if you would be willing to open your home Or if you'd be willing to open your pantry or if you'd be willing to open your billfold or if you'd be willing to open Some of your closets These families and their children need help Fca will kind of quarterback this thing But as a part of our church if you'd like to help all you got to do is take this connection card and just write Fca ukraine on it Give it to our Connection Center. They will pass it along to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. If you say, I'm not sure what I can do, but I want to help. I I just want to do something. Just make sure by the end of the service, you take this card and put FCA Ukraine. Give it to our Connection Center. They'll be in touch with you this week. It's probably going to take a lot of churches in Kansas City to meet all of the needs that are there with these 25 families. It's going to take all of us to meet the needs of all of our friends who are suffering. So as we get ready to jump into today's message, I think it'd be good if we just kind of pause and pray. And ask God to kind of set our hearts up to receive his truth today. So would you pray with me? Would you take a deep breath? (sighs) Kind of settle your heart into this moment. Ask God to speak to your heart through today's Bible study. Tell him that you'll try to listen and act on what he says. God, that is our pretty simple prayer today, that you would speak to us and that you would help us to do uh, what you say to us. We know that as difficulty in life grows, so does doubt. So help us if we're suffering and we're doubting to grow closer to Jesus. And God, for the entire situation that's going on in Eastern Europe right now, but for specifically these 25 families from the Ukraine who work for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes who are coming to Kansas City with just a suitcase and no understanding of what the future might look like, God, may we open our hearts to pray and for those who might be willing to open their homes or their closets or their pantries uh, or their bank accounts to help, I just pray you'll speak to people who are supposed to help, to help in a way that helps these families experience Jesus in the midst of their suffering. That's our prayer. And God, we pray it today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So we can't fast forward. I wish we could because the Sunday after Easter, we're going to enter a 17-week sermon series in Matthew 13 through 17, just called The Kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus begins to talk to his followers about what the kingdom, if God, is going to be like. And we're going to look at profiles of kingdom citizens. We're going to look at what a kingdom mindset looks like. We're going to learn what it looks like to live in Jesus' kingdom. That will start the Sunday after Easter. So we've got a little bit of time between now and then. But we're going to kind of give you a little bit of an appetizer on living in the kingdom with a man named John the Baptist today. So we're going to kind of theme all of our teaching today through the lens of this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. The first thing that we're going to learn, number one, is there is kingdom doubt. As followers of Jesus who live in a lost and broken world, there are going to be circumstances in your life that cause you to doubt who God is and what God is doing. Jesus' cousin, a spirit-filled man who God had huge plans for, so much, for, so, much so that he was prophesied before he was even born— We see doubting a little bit today spiritually. Verse 2 of John chapter 11 says this, when John, that's John the baptizer or John the Baptist, not, not the guy who would later write the book of John, but it says, when John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now we say, why was John in prison and what eventually happened to him? We'll look at that in Matthew 14 when we do a profile of a kingdom citizen named John the baptizer. But the short version is this, Herod, who was one of the local rulers in Israel that Rome had kind of put in charge fell in love with his brother's wife and she divorced his brother and married him. And John the Baptist, as a preacher of like the gospel of Jesus, was like, you shouldn't do that. Um, You should not cause your brother to get a divorce by falling in love with his wife and then marry her. That is inappropriate in in the kingdom of God. And Herod's like, it's inappropriate for you to say anything to me that I haven't asked you to say. So he put him in prison where eventually he would die. As he sits in prison, we see a window into his soul. And the window we see into his soul is this man i hope jesus is who i think he is and some of you that's the window of your soul today you are just praying and hoping that jesus is who you think he is and what we learn from john the baptist is doubt is real and it carries with it both a little bit of spiritual danger but also the ability to create great spiritual depth in our hearts and honestly It usually does both of them and usually in that order. When we doubt or when we suffer, we initially, it's really dangerous spiritually because it causes us to say not, I hope Jesus is who he says he is, but it causes us to say something like this, Jesus is not who I thought he was. So we run the other direction. So doubt can be dangerous spiritually, but it can also bring depth spiritually if we take our doubt and we bring it to Jesus rather than allowing it to cause us to run away from Jesus. And that's what John the Baptist did. He took his doubt and he ran towards Jesus, not away from Jesus. As we were praying with our elders this morning, one of them prayed a very specific prayer when he prayed it. I thought, amen. He said, Lord, let journey be a place where people can process their doubt in a healthy way and get answers to their questions. I thought, that's a good prayer. That's a good prayer. Let journey be a place where doubting people can really process that in a healthy way. That's a good good prayer, And, and get their questions answered. Because doubt is real, and doubt is okay. Look at Pastor John MacArthur stepping back into this, talking to us about our doubt. It should be reassuring to us, you and me as followers of Jesus, that even a man of John's spiritual stature and gifts was subject to doubt. Virtually all the gospel references to doubt pertain to believers, Rather than to unbelievers, and the kind of questioning John the Baptist experienced concerning Jesus' identity we can, can only occur in the life of a believer. John was the greatest man who lived until his time, and when they are confused, all of us, all believers, can take comfort in his perplexity. Jesus, what's going on? It's also encouraging to remember that it was to his true disciples, primarily the twelve, that Jesus repeatedly said such words as, Oh, you have little faith, and how long are you going to doubt? So when we look at John the Baptist's reality, we see that he had some really good reasons to doubt. And honestly, when you and I look at seasons in our life when we doubt, we almost always have one of these four things, if not these four things, kind of layered, one on top of each other. Let me throw them on the screen and we'll talk through. What was going on with John the Baptist? Well, he's living through a difficult circumstance. He was in prison. Some of you, every time you run through a difficult circumstance, it causes you to question who God is. That's real. That's okay. It's normal. There was some worldly influence. John thought like he was under the protection of Almighty God and the kingdom of God, and actually he was still under the authority of the Roman Empire in a pretty corrupt culture. He had some incomplete revelation, which meant he had been told who Jesus was up to that point, but he wasn't quite sure who Jesus was going to be in the future, and he had some unfulfilled expectations. If we could put statements to these, the statements that we say, usually we don't say them, we think them, but if we could be honest enough to state what we were feeling, our expectations might sound like this. We might go through a difficult experience or circumstance and say, my experiences don't really match God's promises at this time. I can't sing that song that we sang in church because while the Bible might say it's true, my life right now says it's not. I'm going through a difficult circumstance and it's causing me to question whether or not that's really true biblically. That's one of the main reasons we doubt is that Life experience does not match what the Bible says. Worldly influence, culture around me seems stronger than Christ in me. Like I want more than anything to really live for Jesus, but it honestly feels like if I did that, my boss has more control over my life than Jesus and he or she's gonna make it difficult on me. I teach in the public schools, and if I really minister to my kids and students the way that Jesus wanted to, it really feels like the school board has more influence over me than Jesus does, and like that that might get me in trouble. I really want to walk all the way with Jesus, but it really feels like my spouse and my kids have kind of more control over me. Like, I want to give Jesus everything, but it feels like that Jesus doesn't have as much control as other people, and that could be really, really dangerous. Incomplete revelation, there's not a verse for this. I walk through something in life and nothing to the Bible. Nothing in the Bible specifically encourages my heart real time in that moment. There's not a verse for this. And then unfulfilled expectations. I think a lot of times when we suffer and when we question Jesus, the unspoken reality of our life is this. I expected, I think, to have it better than Jesus. Because those of us who really know his story believe that Jesus was in the center of God's will his entire life that it was the safest and most impactful place to be. And we know that, like, he was homeless most of his ministry. And we know that he lived in a, in probably poverty his entire ministry. And we know that he was arrested unfairly. And and they nearly beat him to death. And then, they like, they killed him. They hung him on a cross. And, like, he was right in the center of God's will his entire life. Yet we think in American Christianity, if we're in the center of God's will, nothing ever goes wrong to us or for us. And what we're saying is, I guess... I guess I'm expecting God's will for me to be better than it was for Jesus, because Jesus was exactly who God wanted him to be, but he had some really hard moments. If I'm going to be exactly who God wants me to be, I don't expect to have any hard moments. So sometimes I think we detach our life from the reality of who Jesus was, but all of us have these reasons to doubt. I'll never forget May 22, 2011, literally getting blown off of a baseball field. Uh, My son's baseball team was playing in Sedalia, Missouri that day, and we'd reached the championship round kind of late in the afternoon. So we were in the championship game. And a storm came up that literally had such violent bursts of wind. It blew all the bats out of the dugout. Like the helmets were rolling down the foul line. Like the dirt was so much in our face that you could not see anything. And when kind of a clap of thunder hit and a bolt of lightning hit, the umpires just got off the tournaments. And they were like, um, like, tournament's over. We're not going to hand out trophies. Just everybody go to their cars and go home because tornado warnings were starting to pop up everywhere. As we drove home from Sedalia, in crazy rain, We could see a storm cell to the south that looked angrier than any weather I had ever seen in my entire life. It would take until the morning to realize that that included a tornado that would go through Joplin, Missouri, that would be the most destructive tornado in the history of America, nearly $3 billion damage done, and it would kill 158 people. We happened at that point not to be a church that was gathering on Sunday mornings. We had kind of started with a small group of families in my home in January of 2011. In May of 2011, we had like 40 people. We were meeting in a community center, usually on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights. But one of the people who helped us plant our church was the Liberty University Church Planning Network, and they had an aid arm for disaster relief, and they called us and they said, Christian, there are no more trucks or bottled water left in central Missouri to help in Joplin. Can you rent a truck in Kansas City that has a lift? Can you get several thousand bottles of water, and can you drive it down? Because the search and rescue teams, there's no power or water in this disaster area. And I was like, like, we only have 40 people, we don't even take offerings. They're like, well, can can you help or not? And I was like, I'll try. So we sent out like a text message, and we were like, can anyone go to Joplin and help? And like a dozen of us were like, yep, we went, so we were able to rent a truck, with a box lift, we went to all the Sam's and Costco's and Walmart's, we got several thousand bottles of water, and we drove them down, because we were on there on Tuesday, only day two, they had to give us a special pass to get in, because workers were not allowed in the disaster zone, because they were still doing search and rescue, they had the cadaver dogs going house to house, so they told us, you're not allowed to approach any property, because the properties have not been cleared of uh, bodies yet, but we want you to set up this water at stations, and we want you to give water to the aid workers who are working. So that's what we did. A group of us kind of served at a church, cleaning up a church that had nearly been knocked down. Had a couple guys with chainsaws that worked all day long. And then me and a couple others drove around in this truck delivering water all day long. And for those of you who have never been in the aftermath of an F5 tornado, it's indescribable. I don't know what I expected to see, but it was different than what I saw. If, if you've ever been in the aftermath or if you were in Joplin, like we drove into a neighborhood and I think I expected to see like houses that had been knocked down, but literally they were gone. Like we drove into subdivisions that had hundreds of driveways and not a piece of wood anywhere. And like I kept asking the cops who were kind of helping us get around, I was like, where are the, where are the houses? And they're like, they're gone. And I said, what do you mean gone? And they said like, not knocked down, blown away. They're gone. They're just gone. And as we drove past the high school where the roof of the gymnasium had collapsed where they had just finished having graduation and a bunch of people ran back into the school to get away from the storm and were killed in the gym. And as we drove past Home Depot, and the only way you could tell it was Home Depot is because there was some orange scrap metal wrapped around a tree next door. The store was gone, but the orange scrap metal was there where people had died. As we went through all these things, I struggled spiritually. And I remember thinking, I hope no one asked me to encourage them with a Bible verse because there's not a verse for this. I have no idea what God is doing or why God would allow this for this community. And I had some doubt about the goodness of God, the power of God. It led me to nearly a summer-long study of basically a theology of natural disasters. You say, what what does that mean? Trying to understand what the Bible has to say about why nature would turn on its people. What I learned is that the same sin that broke humanity broke the earth. And scripture says that the earth literally groans against humanity longing to be restored to its proper creation because God created a heavens and the earth that worked for humanity not against them. And Revelation says that God will recreate a heavens and the earth that worked for humanity but not against them. But in the middle it's all broken. And the same thing that is broken our hearts has broken the world. And I thought, man, like only Jesus, only Jesus, only Jesus coming back can restore anything that's happened here. Somebody say the name Jesus. See, when you get to your place of doubt and you look through these four reasons to doubt, you have to realize there was a three-hour period in Jesus' life where he had all four of these. He hung on the cross and what the Bible defined as probably a total eclipse of total darkness. And at the end of three hours, he uttered these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was in the most difficult circumstance of his life. What he was experiencing did not match the reality of the relationship that he had had with God since the beginning of time, separated for the first and only time from God the Father. The worldly influence had nailed him to a cross and at that point seemed like it was winning. There was incomplete revelation that Jesus had not yet risen from the dead into a glorified body. So he hung in the pain of the natural because the supernatural had not yet happened. And certainly the expectations where Jesus prayed the night before the cross, like if there's any other way, could I do it another way? And God was like, no, like this has to be the way. Like there was this tension in the soul of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews says, when you suffer so much that it causes you to doubt. In Hebrews 12, he said, remember Jesus. Yeah, remember Jesus. You got to consider him who suffered on the cross because he didn't turn down his difficult circumstance. And he didn't turn down incomplete revelation. And he didn't turn down looking like he was losing to the world from all. Like he went through all of that so that when you went through your suffering, you could look to him and he could help you? And then the author of Hebrews says, and by the way, you haven't gone to the cross yet, so you're suffering, but Jesus can help you in your suffering. Somebody say Jesus. Jesus. See, when life gives us reasons to doubt, Jesus gives us reasons to trust. So John the Baptist is like, "Are, are you who I think you are? And Jesus said, tell him that I am. Tell him to hang in there. Tell him not to hang it up when he suffers, but to hang in there when he suffers. And what's interesting is like Jesus steps into this situation and like basically tells John the Baptist, like you can trust me, but like I'm not going to change your circumstance. So Jesus like tells John the Baptist, I am who you think I am and you can trust me and I'm going to be with you, but I'm not going re- to really deliver you. So kingdom doubt only finds, its, only finds its help and only finds its hope in kingdom trust. And sometimes God leaves you right where you are. But his promise is, I'll be with you where you are. And just don't forget about Jesus. Because he went through this so you wouldn't have to go what you're going through alone. So kingdom doubt is very, very real. You say, what caused John the Baptist to run towards Jesus with his doubt instead of away from Jesus with his doubt. Well, he had some kingdom distinction. That would be number two. John the Baptist lived with this kingdom distinction. I'll unpack it more fully in Matthew 14 when we get there. But John the Baptist, here's here's what you need to understand. Why would he run to Jesus when he doubted rather than away from Jesus when he doubted? Because John the Baptist was looking for confirmation that his faith was in the right place. He wasn't looking for information on whether or not to have faith. He'd already placed his faith in Jesus. What he was trying to confirm was that he was still good. It's interesting. In Matthew chapter 9, we see John send his disciples to listen to Jesus teach, ask some questions of Jesus, and then bring back the answers. In Luke chapter 7, we see John send his disciples to interact with Jesus, ask him some questions, and bring back. So John the Baptist not only baptized Jesus and said he's the Messiah, he constantly had runners going back and forth saying, watch this guy and let's make sure. So like John the Baptist had done his homework we see him throughout scripture saying, go make sure, and then they come back, like, yep, he's still doing it. Go make sure, yep, he's still doing it. So he had done his homework spiritually. He was just like the father in Mark 9, 24, who when he brought his son who was having seizures to Jesus and said, Jesus, if you can do anything, please help me. And Jesus said, what do you mean if? And he said, if you believe, I can do anything. And the father c- quoted his famous prayer. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what John the Baptist was doing in Mark chapter 11. He was saying, Jesus, I believe and have placed my faith in you, but right now some circumstances are causing me to have unbelief. Can you help me confirm that my unbelief is an aberration of spiritual warfare so I can still trust you? I think one of the most powerful things that Christians can do when they are struggling with unbelief is just say it out loud. I'm struggling to believe. When I lost someone close to me, it's now making me struggle to believe. When my husband or my wife walked out, it's now making me struggle to believe. When I gave the first 10% of my income, tithed, and then I got fired, it made me struggle to believe. When we lost one of our kids uh, with a miscarriage, it's made me struggle to believe. When my mom or dad died, it made me struggle to, like, I think the most powerful thing we can do with our unbelief is say it out loud. Jesus, I am trying to believe, but I got this thing over here, and I need some help with it. I think if you can do that, your doubt will drive you to Jesus rather than from Jesus. But you've got to be willing to say it out loud. Basically, what John the Baptist was saying is like the title of our Bible study today. He was saying, like, I need to have faith in my faith. Like, sometimes Christians need to have faith in your faith. I believe, but sometimes, like, not enough. So, like, I'm just going to have to, like, I, I don't have any reason right now other than faith to believe in my faith. That was John the Baptist. And when we look at John the Baptist, we read from Jesus some distinctions that he had in his life that made him run to Jesus with doubt rather than away from Jesus. Let's look at him in verses 7 through 10. It says, As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you in more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written. I'm going to send my messenger ahead of you who will, prepare, who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus says, let me tell you about John the Baptist and why his faith in a season of doubt is going to hold together. Because he had some realities and he had some reactions to doubt that because of his spiritual distinctives in his heart held his heart together. What were those? Let me give you three. Jesus said, here's why John the Baptist, here's why his faith held together when he doubted. One, because he had some core convictions. This was not a guy who was easily swayed. James chapter one says, when you go to God, you must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea and like you're just blown and tossed everywhere. And and a double-minded man, a person who can't make up his mind, is unstable in everything he does. John the Baptist had some core convictions. This man is not easily swayed. He's given his life for me, and even in a moment of doubt, he's just checking whether or not he's still good, but he's got some core convictions. He's built some core theology in his life. He's not easily swayed with whatever the latest Facebook trend or news alert scare is. Like, he can't be easily swayed. Secondly, he's been willing to personally sacrifice his entire life. When you went out to see John, was he wearing nice clothes? No. Was he eating nice food? No. Because John never tried to leverage the kingdom for his own good. John's call in the kingdom was always Acts 20, 35, where Paul says, remember how Jesus taught? He says, better to give than receive. So like John was always willing to personally sacrifice, John was not coming to Jesus saying, what have you done for me lately? Which is how so many of us approach Jesus in our faith. When God is good, I follow closely. When he's not, I'm out. What have you done for me lately? That was not John. John was a man of personal sacrifice. He was always looking at what he could give the kingdom, not what he could receive from the kingdom. So even this time in jail... I don't want to say it wasn't a big deal, but it didn't cause him to quit, and that's because he was fulfilling his personal calling. And I want you to watch closely what I believe is happening in Matthew chapter 11, because John doesn't ask to be released from prison or spared from death. What does he ask Jesus? Are you the Messiah? He's just confirming, are you the Messiah? Why? Because in Luke one seventeen, 17, an angel came and spoke to his dad and said, Your wife is going to have a baby, and his only purpose in life is going to be to tell the world who the Messiah is. So I think John is trying to fulfill his calling here. I think John's only concern sitting in prison is not, Am I going to get out of here? Am I going to survive this? But did I do what God created me to do? I'm just double checking because God put me on planet Earth to tell the world who the Messiah was. I said it was you. Am I good? Like, you're the guy, right? And what if you and I, when we suffered and struggled, instead of asking the question, how do I get out of this, began to ask the question, how do I point people to Jesus through this? What if we saw our suffering as one of our spiritual callings to point people to the Messiah rather than a spiritual problem to find our way out of? That might change not just our perspective, but how the world sees Christians suffer. Because John nowhere says, you're going to get me out of here. John nowhere says, am I going to survive this? John asked one very specific question. Are you the Messiah? Because my only job in life was to tell the world who the Messiah is. I just need to make sure I got it right. If I got it right, I'll die in prison knowing I did what God created me to do. I just need to make sure I'm doing what God has created me to do. See, John ran to Jesus with doubt instead of away from Jesus because he had some core convictions he was willing to personally sacrifice. And he knew what his personal calling was. Journey can help you, by the way, find these things. If you're saying, you know, I, I struggle with core convictions. I don't know a whole lot about the Bible. I'm not really able to answer questions real easily. Like, we can help you with that. We have a discipleship track every Sunday night at 6 p.m. called Scripture Track, and the whole purpose of Scripture Track is to give you a biblical worldview so when news of the world scares you again, you are not easily swayed because you have found a biblical worldview through Jesus. If you don't have anything going on more important than developing core convictions on Sunday night, be here tonight at 6 o'clock in the auditorium across the atrium. You can come today. I promise you, you'll be... You'll be more rooted by May 1 than you are now, I promise you. Or come on Tuesday night, 6.30. Our men's and ladies Bible studies right after spring break are starting a six-week kind of curriculum. And the only purpose of that six-week curriculum is to teach you how to read your Bible, how to journal, how to get truth out of your Bible, how to hear from God in your Bible, and how to use your Bible to answer the questions that you have. I promise you, if you don't have core convictions that have rooted you, you go to our men's and ladies studies on Tuesday night between spring break and Mother's Day, you'll be more rooted in your core convictions in May than you are today. We can help you with that. We can also help you with the other two. Personal sacrifice and spiritual calling. We have a ministry called Growth Track meets during this service, meeting right now, actually, out those two doors. The whole purpose of growth track at the end of the four weeks that meet, week one, two, three, four, is to help you discover your personal calling so that you can do what God created you to do. So when you suffer, you don't ask the question, how do I get out of here, but am I using this to make sure I fulfill the purpose God has called me to? Like if you will give a month of your 1030s on Sunday, I promise you, by April 1, you'll know your personal calling if you don't know it yet. And if you'll give a few Sunday nights or Tuesday nights to discipleship tracts or men's or ladies' ministry, like, we can help you with core convictions. And these things are really, really important because when we suffer, not if, and when we doubt, not if. We've got to make sure we're running to Jesus, not away from Jesus. I think Jesus helped John answer this question, which I believe is a really distinct question. I believe a distinction question we need to ask Jesus when we suffer and doubt is this. Has Jesus proven that he's worthy of your trust? When we suffer, when we doubt, I think this is the distinctive question followers of Jesus should be asking. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but has Jesus proven that he's worthy of my trust? Because if Jesus has proven in the past that you can trust him, you can trust him tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. He told John, John, I've proven you can trust me. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but your past has shown you enough for you to trust me in your future. Amen? Amen. And I think if we can learn to answer that distinctive question, we can have some of these spiritual distinctions of John. But one of the things that made John's life hard was the third one, and we'll close with this. I call it kingdom division. John lived in a very unique period of kingdom division in spiritual history. But he also experienced two types of division that you and I are experiencing real time today. You say, what are those? Let's look at verse 11 real quick. John says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So three realities of kingdom division that John lived through. First, he lived through a division in spiritual history that was unlike any other time. And here was the division in spiritual history. Everything that had happened spiritually before Jesus and everything that would happen after Jesus. Jesus is like, John, I'm telling you, John is the greatest human being born of a woman in the before Jesus age. He's the very, very best. But what he experiences with God is not going to be like anything people experience with God after the death and resurrection of the Messiah. He literally lives right in between two worlds. He is the greatest old covenant person that understands the Messiah. He's the greatest that's ever been born. But that ain't nothing for those of you who will really experience the death, burial, resurrection of the Messiah, and then his Holy Spirit in your lungs. So he lived at this unique division of spiritual history. He also lived in this unique kingdom division that is, that is set up by the word violence twice. Jesus, ever since, ever since the beginning, violence has been coming against the kingdom, and violent men have been raiding it. Jesus is actually saying two different things there, not one. The word from an outside perspective means oppressed. Jesus says, ever since we've been talking about the kingdom, people have been oppressing it." John the Baptist has been arrested. They're going to behead him. Uh, They're going to hang me on a cross. 11 of the 12 disciples would die a martyr's death. The apostle Paul would die a martyr's death. Like Jesus, like people are coming at, violence is coming against the kingdom of God. But he said, the only way to get into it, raid it, to, to get into it is through violent men. You say, what does that mean? Violence has been oppressing from the outside, but Jesus said the only way to get into the kingdom of God is to force your way into it because culture runs against it. The word violent there really should be more appropriately used, kind of hard-headed or belligerence against the flow. Jesus was literally saying this, the kingdom of God has come, culture is going this way, the kingdom of God is going this way, and the only way to get into the kingdom of God is to ram your head against culture. And to feel like every day the world is kind of beating the tar out of you. If you say, man, every, ever since I became a Christian, I feel like the whole world is against me. You're doing it right. That's what it means. When Jesus says violent, men," right, he said it takes a little grit. It takes a little toughness. It takes a little energy to get into the kingdom of God and continually swim upstream. Because they are against you and you are going to be going against the flow of culture. It will feel like the whole world is against you. But John the Baptist did it, and so can you. And then there was a division in his spiritual experience. Jesus said he is the Elijah to come. The Old Testament ends in Malachi 4 with uh, the prophet Malachi saying that the Elijah, the prophet Elijah will come and he'll turn the hearts of children to their parents and parents to their children before God comes and judges the whole land. And John the Baptist thought it was his job to change people's hearts so that God wouldn't have to judge the land. But that's not what Malachi 4 says. Malachi 4 says that while people's hearts are being judged, God's judgment will wait, but it'll still come against the land. I think John thought if the kingdom of God comes, literally everyone is all in or everyone's all out, but it can't be that some enter and some stay out. And Jesus is like, it's exactly what happened. John's spiritual experience is the same thing you and I experience. It's what I call our divided kingdom, my divided kingdom, your divided kingdom. Here, Here it is in one simple statement. The kingdom of God lives in us, but we don't live in it. And it kind of makes life hard. That was John the Baptist's spiritual experience. Wait a minute, I came to open the door to the kingdom of God. Don't I live in it? And Jesus is like, well, it lives in you. You live in Rome. Jesus in Luke chapter 17 was like, the kingdom of God is among you. And then they killed him. Like, wait a minute, like, was it or was it not? It's like, yeah, part of that process was the crucifixion of Jesus. And now today you and I have the kingdom of God that lives in us, but we live in Kansas City. And it is not the kingdom of God. And every day we feel like we're swimming upstream, not just through culture, but through the experiences in our life that cause us to suffer, that cause us to doubt, that make us wonder if we should just throw it all away. Don't hang it up, hang in there. Say, Christian, what about all the questions that I have? One of the next steps I wanted to give you as we close our message today is in your bulletin. It's this little card. I asked one of our elders who teaches apologetics, a seminary graduate, I said, man, I'm gonna talk to our people about doubt and I'm gonna tell them doubt's okay. Questions are okay. Questions can build their faith. But like, I think we need to then like pretty quickly answer all those questions. Will you teach a half day apologetics class for anyone who has questions about their own faith? Or maybe their friends and family have been asking questions that they can't answer. Doubt's real, it's okay. But we wanna use it to push us closer to Jesus. He said, I'd love to. So Saturday from eight to noon, in person or online, we're gonna have four sessions. How can we really know that God is real? How can we know that the scriptures came from God? Session two, how do we really believe or why should we believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose again? And session number four, how do we talk about pain and suffering and still believe God is a good God? Those are four pretty good sessions to have. At the end of each of those sessions, 10 to 15 minutes of just Q&A. And a we have already got 25 or so people signed up before we even started today. If you would like to find out hard answers, but good, good, good questions that have hard answers for your faith, I'd love for you to come to this this Saturday, eight to noon, or you can watch it online if you're not able to be there. But it's time to start realizing doubt's real, doubt's okay, but we gotta get our questions answered spiritually. And one of the reasons this means so much to me is because I naturally am a skeptic. My bent is to question things before I believe things. And Pastor Scott and I just this week booked our uh, summer tickets to Israel. We are this summer trying to go visit some of our missions partners that we haven't been with in two years because of COVID, kind of getting in and out of places quickly, Israel, Turkey, some other places, just trying to see some people on the other side of the world that you all support every time you give. And as soon as I booked my ticket to Israel, my heart, my heart was just refreshed in me. And you say, why? Because every time I go to Israel, and you wouldn't know it if you were with me, but as I walk through the fields where David killed Goliath, I walk through the streets of Capernaum where Jesus did ministry. I sail on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Every time I walk through the streets of the old city of Jerusalem, inside me, the running narrative that rolls in my head is this. It's real. Like this stuff is real. This place is real. This stuff really happened. Say, Christian, you doubt? Yeah. Don't you believe? Yes. But I also often ask God to help my unbelief because I have a lot of experiences in life that make me wanna question what this book says. So for me to be there, to walk it, to live it, to touch it, to walk along the old streets and run my hand along some of the old walls that they know were stamped and built in the time of Herod that Jesus and his disciples would have walked by. I just, as I walk, I just, I'm telling myself in my faith, this is real. You can trust this, it's really happened. That's one of the primary reasons I love going to Israel because every time I believe again, I believe again, any of you raised in kind of traditional churches singing old hymns? Am I the only one? Some of, a lot of us? I don't know why they're so catchy and memorable. I don't know if it's because it, for those of us raised in traditional churches, we weren't allowed to miss church or we go to hell. Like, I don't know if it's because like we were there every Sunday. I don't know if it's because we sang the same songs. I don't know why it is, but like every old, hy- old hymn like I, that I ever sang, I feel like, I, like I've memorized and can sing over and over and over again. And there was an old hymn that I want to close the service with not singing but I had this tagline, this course, that is a verse that Paul gave to Timothy, that I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Where'd that come from? 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul tells a young guy, Timothy, who is mentoring, that Jesus saved us and called us to a life of faith that's really difficult and includes suffering. But he said, Timothy, I know whom I believed in Jesus, and I've just become convinced that the faith that I have placed in him, he'll help me hang on to until it's time to be with him. If you're here today and you're doubting, run to Jesus. If you're here today and you're suffering, run into the arms of somebody who wants to help. If you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, please hear today. He's real. He knows you, he loves you, he died on the cross and was buried in the tomb and raised on the third day so that you would not have to pay the penalty for your sin but that you could be forgiven and one day be with him forever. And the message today is that Jesus is real, faith is real and even when you need to have faith in your faith, keep moving towards Jesus, amen? Would you pray with me as we get ready to close the service? God, thank you for what you've taught us today. God, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that you were able to keep the faith that I've entrusted to you, that I've committed to you until the day that I stand before you. So I pray for everyone here online who's been wavering in their faith because of suffering or doubt. Lord, let us once again put faith in faith and move towards Jesus. If you're here today and you've never started a personal relationship with Jesus through faith, you can do that. You just surrender trying to do life your own way. You acknowledge that there's some sin in your life that needs to be forgiven. And you commit to follow Jesus. If you've never done that, you can through opening your heart today to begin a relationship with the God of heaven. You can pray a simple prayer that goes something like this. You can repeat after me. It's not my prayer or really the words of the prayer, but it's opening your heart to Jesus that brings you into relationship with God. If you've never done that from your heart to heaven, don't even have to pray it out loud. You can pray something like this, Jesus, Just repeat it after me, Jesus, I need you. Today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to trust it. Today by faith, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask you to cleanse me from my past. I ask you to heal me of my hurt. And I ask you to be with me in my future. Jesus, thank you for loving me Forgiving me, saving me, and helping me to begin a relationship with the God of the universe. Be with me as I walk after you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed if you just pray that prayer with me. In just a second, we'll tell you how you can respond to let us know so we can celebrate with you, give you some information to help you. But if you're here and you're doubting, doubt is real and it's Okay. It'll actually make you stronger if you run to Jesus. If you're here and you're suffering, we're sorry. We acknowledge it's hard to trust when you suffer, but we challenge you to run to Jesus. And if you're here and you know someone who is running from God because of their suffering rather than to God, I'm just gonna ask you in our prayer time to pray for them. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Our worship team's getting ready to lead us. Spiritual care team, I'm gonna ask you to come just get in place. While we remain in just a state of prayer, here's how we're going to dismiss this time to allow us to just kind of reflect on what God has said to us. I'll say a prayer in just a moment. Our worship team will begin to sing. When they do that, if you made a spiritual decision today and you'd like to tell someone, would you just come down to the altar and connect to one of our team members, introduce yourself, tell them you made a spiritual decision. If you're doubting and you have some unbelief, don't keep it to yourself. As we move into our prayer time and just kind of soaking in the message, would you come to one of our altar workers and just say, hey, here's my name and here's why I'm struggling with some areas of unbelief. Would you just let them pray for you? I think you'd feel comforted just by saying it and have somebody pray for you. If you wanna pray at our altar alone, you can do that. We've got communion stations set up around the room. If you wanna grab communion for your family to just kind of sit in this moment, spend time with Jesus taking communion, you can do that. When we feel like our altar time is finished, we'll ask you all to stand and sing and we'll dismiss together. But don't leave, sit in what God has spoken to you and think about how you need to respond. If you wanna come forward and pray, if you wanna come forward and be prayed over, if you wanna move towards our communion stations and take communion in your time of reflection, we wanna release you to do that. Jesus, speak to our hearts. We're listening. Move us towards Jesus today. In Christ's name, amen.